Thanks for listening to the Cascade Vineyard Church Podcast. To learn more about our community or the vineyard movement as a whole, feel free to visit our website, cascadevineyard.org. There you'll also find additional teachings, information on our various ministries, and other resources for further developing your faith. We'd love to have you join us for worship. Enjoy this message. Yeah, I really respect a guy like Glenn. Not Glenn, but a guy like Glenn that I know. But um, yeah. I know, I, but I, it's in my notes. I had to do that. And by the way, I, did you get the memo on my speaker policy? However long it takes for me to get the service is how long I have to teach. So according to my watch, that's... Okay, that's good. Uh, that would be no different than anywhere else I speak. Um, <clears throat> people tend to stop listening before I stop talking. Um, but that's okay. So last week, I want to just recap very quickly because last week, in fact, uh, if you open that, that first slide, here's a statement. Uh, the next, go to the next slide there. The most underutilized source of spiritual power in our churches today is intercession for Christian leaders. I, I really believe that that's true. This was written by a person who is both involved in prayer and local churches. Peter Wagner has gone to be with the Lord, but I really believe that. So if you weren't here last week, um, there are some pink sheets. There's nothing significant about the colors, just all I could grab that is kind of a long article on how to pray for your pastor. And then there's sort of a, sh a cheat sheet. This you can put in your Bible or put somewhere where you can access it. Um, I, I couldn't encourage you more, and I'm not gonna go back and redo last week. Pastors, not just Glenn and Donna, but uh, Tucker and Zoe and the McVickers, pray for your leaders it will make a huge difference. In fact, before I get into the message, um, I stepped away from being the lead pastor at Oasis Vineyard in Hermiston after 22 years, and um, I've had just occasion to reflect, reflect on my time, and um, a lot of different reflections, but one thing that began to come into focus for me was I, I charted the seasons, and there were several. There were several specific seasons where we were the most alive. We were being effective. Um, people were being transformed, and I I followed that with the effectiveness of our prayer ministry. Back around. 99 or 2000, right around there, my father-in-law became part of our church. I think I told you that he was a pastor for 27 years. He was an evangelist for 25 years after that. And he became part of our church and he, create, or he, he didn't create it, but he spearheaded a pastor prayer partner ministry where he enlisted people, men and women in the church to pray for, for me and for ministry heads, leaders of ministries. And um, 
every Sunday, a group of people would come into my office and lay hands on me and pray for me. We had uh, other prayer on Sunday morning. The intercessory team was formed, and there was a lead intercessor that prayed for me, and she put together people in charge of praying for the youth, the children, the worship service, the word preparation. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that you can do a one-to-one correlation, but I'm not sure it was coincidental either that the prayer that was going on in the church and the fruitfulness that was going on in the church was around the same time. My lead intercessor died of cancer and things began to fall off and then I kind of noticed, oh, we, we didn't have that deep intercession going on and things were harder. Things were less exciting. Things were difficult. So I just, I want to encourage you to um, pick up, at least pick up this little card and put it in your Bible and pray for your pastors and leaders throughout this year. This beginning of the year, it's a good thing to do. So later today, the 49ers are going to play the Packers and uh, beat the snot out of them. No, I, oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that? No, I, I, I have something else in my notes. Um, back in 1961, the first day of training camp, the Packers came in off of a horrible loss to the Philadelphia Eagles. They had squandered a lead and lost the NFL championship, and they were looking forward to a new season. You know, they're going to be better plays, smarter, more effective, but their coach had a little bit of a different idea. Legendary coach Vince Lombardi held up a pigskin in his right hand and said, gentlemen, this is a football. And that began a tradition of every season, the coach would do the same thing and bring his team back to the fundamentals, back to the basics. No matter what the strategy was, no matter what the finesse, no matter what the innovation, he knew that it would involve blocking and tackling and rushing and passing and receiving. So he came back to the, to the basics. Could I say this morning, brothers and sisters, this is a Bible. And it contains the story. It contains the story of a powerful creator who creates the world and then humanity to enjoy it. It's a story of how man decided he was going to do his own thing and the resultant pain and struggle and despair and disappointment. But it's a story of that creator who becomes the redeemer. His father heart comes to forgive and to restore and to remedy man's predicament. And he wants a relationship with us more than a creator, more than a sovereign king. He wants the relationship as our heavenly father. He wants us to be the family of God. And not the family that most of us grew up with. I mean, if you, you look up dysfunctional family, you might find a picture of mine in there. Um, you know, with the brokenness and the pain, but the very best of what family means. A loving heavenly father with children loving each other. When I say this next statement, it, it kind of jangles me, but I've actually been attempting to follow Jesus for the past 50 years. Came to the Lord as a teenager, and I'm getting the idea that we really don't get very far from the basics. 
We, we come to understand them better. We come to untangle them from our immaturity. We untangle them from our selfishness and our brokenness, but we don't get very far from the basics. And what could be more basic than prayer? So I want to talk a little bit about prayer this morning. Prayer evokes all kinds of images in our mind. Some of us, we think of people, someone with uh, their head bowed, their eyes closed, their hands folded. But another picture might be of, of head raised and eyes wide open and hands outstretched. It could be bowing, it could be kneeling, it could be prostrating. For me, I have a picture like some of you of sitting in my favorite chair by the fire or by the window with my notebook and Bible in hand and a hot beverage, of course. Um, some people think of prayer as they take their daily walk. I, ha I know a guy that every day takes a walk and prays. It evokes the picture of God walking in the garden in the beginning in Genesis chapter three and verse eight. When you think about coming to Cascade, when you think about coming to Cascade Vineyard, do you think about coming to a place of prayer? I know we think about this awesome place of worship. I know Glenn has been very faithful and consistent in teaching the word. But do we think of our gatherings, not only here, but in your small groups, as a house of prayer? I want to challenge you with that. Now, we have some pretty strange ideas of prayer, right? You can nod your head or say something if, if I ask you a question. It's okay. All right. I won't be afraid. If you get up and start coming toward me, then we'll have people take you out. But yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe not. That's right. So there was this very timid woman who wanted to be part of the visitation program in her church, but she was just petrified of the thought of actually going and visiting people. And the pastor kind of picked up on that, so he gave her some counsel, and he said, listen, um, you should pray before each visit and God will give you peace. You know, all of Philippians 4, 8, the peace of God will, will rule in your heart past your understanding. So a week later, she comes back in, walking on cloud nine. She jubilantly tells the preacher, you were right, prayer works. Before each one of my visits, I prayed that the people wouldn't be home and they weren't. Some churches, though, they believe in prayer about as much as a ship captain and caught in a storm and it was evident that the ship was going to go down. So he says, does anyone here, to his, to his uh, staff, to his crew, does anyone here know how to pray? One volunteered, yes, sir, I do. So the captain said, good. You pray while the rest of us put on our life jackets. We're one short. So if you look up the definition, we could talk for weeks and weeks and weeks about prayer. If you look up the definition, I mean, just Google the Bible dictionary if you don't have one, and you'll learn so much about prayer. Prayer, as I said last week, is as simple as a conversation, but it can be as complex as strategic level warfare. It's the interchange of our soul with God, not just in contemplation, but in direct address. We're talking to our Heavenly Father. And that presupposes a belief that He is a person and He is able and willing to hold conversation with us. 
It also presupposes that he has control over all things, including the details of our lives. We come to God in an acceptable way. Hebrews says, if we have a sincere heart and we come in faith. Hebrews 10.22 says, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. We have access to the Father. We come with boldness when we come sincerely and we come with faith. Jesus told us to come with faith. Ask and you shall receive. Interestingly, you can follow up on this and challenge me if you want, but there are no rules as to how we are to come to God in prayer. There, the, the posture is never spelled out in some rule sort of way. There's mention of kneeling, there's mention of bowing, there's mention of falling prostrate, there's mention of spreading out hands, there's mention of standing in prayer, but none of those are commands. I think your pastor is going to look at the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. I'd like to say that it's the disciples' prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17. And we think of that, you know, you know the one? Our Father. Okay. We think of that prayer and we utilize that prayer. Many, many congregations across the world incorporate that specific prayer word for word in their gatherings. But Jesus never gave it to us as something to recite or a set prayer to be offered. It's really a modern, a model or a pattern of prayer. Jesus didn't say this is what you should pray. He said this is how you should pray. So he gives us an outline of prayer and I think Maybe Glenn's going to touch on that next week. So Abraham's servant prayed to God, and God gave him direction to the person that would be the wife of his son. Jacob prayed to God, and God softened the heart of his brother, and they were able to meet in peace and friendship. Samson prayed in desperation one time, and the Lord actually showed him a well that quenched his thirst that enabled him to be one of the judges of Israel. David prayed, and God actually defeated the council of Ahithophel. Daniel prayed, and God enabled him to not only tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was, but what it meant. That was in answer to prayer. Nehemiah prayed, and God inclined the heart of the king of Persia to give him leave to go, and to, go to visit and rebuild Jerusalem. Esther and Mordecai prayed. And God defeated the purpose of Haman, saved the Jews from destruction. The believers in Jerusalem prayed. And God opened the prison door and Peter was set free when Herod had actually resolved to put him to death. Prayer is so basic. Hey, here's an idea. Let's pray right now. I'm serious. You can follow me. Lord, we just ask that you would enliven the word to us, the passage that we're going to look at right now. Would you um, speak to us by the Spirit through the word? Amen. So, Mark chapter 11, I I, I say verse 15. I'm actually going to go back a little bit because you need the context. And by the way... um, some things that I have to share today may, may not, um, I'm not speaking this directly to Cascade Vineyard, but I, but I think it may land because we are a church, we are people, and this is the word of God, so something's going to happen good, right? 
But let me go back into verse 13 because this is important. Um, I'm sorry, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went on to Bethany with the 12. So uh, the day before, he comes in and he checks things out. And I think that what he saw grieved him. And it began to churn and stir in him. So now let's, let's go to verse 15. So this is the next day after the cursing of the fig tree. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, wow, how would you, how would you like to teach after that? <laughs> Just run them out and then, oh, by the way, okay. Um, he points them to the scripture. This is Isaiah 56. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. I think there were many reasons they feared him. We'll come back to at least one, I think. Um, But because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So there are a lot of things that we could unpack from this passage. I want to give you four. The first is that we need to beware of how things meant to serve others can become self-serving. We need to keep the main thing the main thing regarding our gatherings. Be careful that when you're self-serving, you actually might be hindering someone else from connecting with God, especially the marginalized. And the last point is that it's, it's really easy to fall back into our broken patterns of living even after Jesus has disrupted our lives in a powerful way. So let's look at this. The people that Jesus chased out of the temple were actually supposed to be there. How many knew that? If you think about it, these people originally were present to facilitate worship. Why is that? Well, people came to the temple at least three of the major feasts, but people were coming to the temple all the time for, for dedicating or circumcising babies. They were coming when you turned 20 years old and older, you were to come to the temple and you were to pay, a, you could call it a temple tax, but it was actually a redemption tax. It was half a shekel. If you want to read a, a little bit about it, you can read all the way back into Exodus 30 before the Romans were the oppressors in the land. In Exodus 30, they are, they are told to have a temple coin, a shekel. It was called temple currency, and a half a shekel, it was the cost of redemption. There were to be sacrifices, and even in, uh, in uh, the passage, you read the parallel passages, and you'll find out that Jesus got rid of the doves as well as the cattle. What, was the, what were the doves about? The doves were an offering for the very poor. If you couldn't afford a lamb to bring as a sacrifice for the family, you would bring two turtle doves. Anyone could scrounge up enough money to get two turtle doves, and they were selling them in the temple. What was that all about? 
Well, people were coming from all over the country, from the north, from Nazareth, several hundred miles trekking, and it became difficult to bring the animals with them. It became difficult for them to have money for the temple tax. They were using a Roman denarii, and they had to change it. And if anyone has traveled internationally, you get to another country, very often the first thing you do is you go to the, you go to the money exchange, the gambio, the, you know, you change the money into the currency of the country that you're in. And so they were doing that, but, but something had happened that shifted and made the secondary the primary. I don't know what exactly parallel um, in your church what that means. But when we're called to serve and we're called to facilitate worship, it doesn't take much of a shift or much of a change before that service can become self-serving. And it becomes more about me than the people I'm serving. And then, you know, we're not selling stuff. And even if we did sell stuff, um, I just, I thought of something years ago at Oasis um, I mean, this is long time ago when it when it was you know on the on the cusp of being cool by serving coffee in the church, and we we got our hands on a an espresso machine, and I mean, woohoo! We, and I I plunked down the money for an espresso cart, and it was right there, and and people commented how oh it's so welcoming to walk in the front door and smell coffee, and I, you know, so it, it was great, but then. Um, Several years in, worship had started. We're halfway through worship, and I'm hearing, and I like to think maybe I had the attitude of Jesus, (laughs) but I went back, and I'm like, I started this, and I will stop this. This, It's not about coffee. Coffee. Coffee is to facilitate worship, and if we got 15 or 20 people out here waiting for their coffee, what's up with that? It was something along that line. It's so easy to get things upside down. They made the, the secondary, the primary. Instead of facilitating the worship of God, they were looking to make a shekel. They were there to facilitate the worshipers connecting with God, but they'd become self-serving. And in the process, they hindered people from connecting with God. Jesus comes and said, listen, you have revised the purpose of God's house. You have revised the purpose of the gathering of the people of God. You've made it commercialized. You've exchanged commercial services, goods and services for money. And I think at least in part, uh, the reason that the religious leaders feared Jesus' teaching, if the crowds embraced it, it would hit their bottom line. Because see, that's what happened. The religious leaders were in charge of everything that went on in the temple. And so the people that were selling doves, the people that were exchanging money, they were there by permission of the religious leaders. And guess who got a little bit of a kickback, who got a tax? And by the time of Jesus... Caiaphas, the high priest, he was rolling. He was rolling fat. I mean, he was rich. And it was off of the people of God. And so I think that, you know, follow the money. 
when you begin to love it, it leads to the all kinds of evil. That's what the Bible says. Even religious people, even religious leaders can succumb to this allure of money. So Jesus is bringing the people back to the basic purpose for gathering. Here's what I see here. Jesus is saying, listen, the atmosphere of my house needs to be that of prayer. People coming and opening their heart to their father in worship and in petition, in repentance and in supplication, and you've made it a commercial exchange goods for money. That's very different than the purpose that God has for our gatherings. I don't think that this is the case here, but I can tell you there are churches in our city right now meeting where people have taken an attitude of, I come in, I pay my tithe, you minister to me. The pastor is not a shepherd, he's a hireling. That's what we pay you to do, pastor. These attitudes can creep in. I don't think that's an issue here because the part of the the family that we are identifying with is all about that everyone gets to play and it's not it's not Glenn or the other pastoral staff's job to do ministry. It's to lead and facilitate you to do ministry. So anyway, I would submit to you that the thing that is supposed to distinguish churches, places where the people of God gather, is that there's an aroma of prayer. There's an atmosphere of prayer. There's a welcome of prayer that permeates. So let me summarize. First of all, they got off track and became self-serving rather than serving others in worship. The main thing then took the back seat and actually got lost. But thirdly, it actually hindered the most marginalized from worship. There's no question that Jesus was angry because they revised the purpose of the meeting place. There was supposed to be a dominant atmosphere of prayer, connection to God. And let let me say this again. Let me repeat myself. The church ought to be a place where the atmosphere is distinguished from every other human gathering. There is a social piece to our gathering. We love to hang out. We love to check in. That's called fellowship. But whenever the people of God gather, there should be something that distinguishes us from every other human gathering. Jesus said his house should be called a house of prayer. He didn't say it would be a house of preaching, although there was teaching and preaching going on. He didn't say there was a house of music, although the temple always had choirs and there was music that filled the house, but he called it a house of prayer. And here specifically, quoting Isaiah, he said it's a house of prayer for all nations. He was troubled and angry about the self-serving rather than facilitating connection, but more specifically, I believe he was angry that this was all taking place in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And whether the people of God, whether the Jews consciously or unconsciously did this, they were treating the Gentiles as not that important when it comes to prayer and worship. They wouldn't allow this stuff to come into the inner place where they go and where they worship and where they connect, but they would allow all of this commercialization to happen in the court of the Gentiles. 
And it not only hindered them, in many cases it prevented them from coming and connecting with God in the way that God had intended. And I, in reading the commentaries, go read the commentaries, they don't really land on this. They they land on the commercialization, but I don't think I'm reading into the text. Because I believe that the heart of God is grieved whenever the marginalized are hindered from connection. And I guess part of the message today is to evoke a question. Is there anything that we do in our gathering or as a person who is following Jesus? Are, are there any things that, anything that we do that may be meant, uh, hindering somebody else because we've gotten the focus off of him and onto self? I think Jesus was saying, listen to these people. If you, don't, if you don't want to walk in the privilege of connection with the creator who is also your redeemer and your provider, that's your choice. But don't put a stumbling block in the path of other people. You remember Jesus' warning when he talked about the little children and the disciples tried to hinder the little children from coming to him. He says, you guys don't, know, don't get it. It's better if a millstone be tied around your neck and you're thrown into the sea that you would hinder one of these little ones. It applies to the little ones, but it also applies to the outsider. It applies to the marginalized. It par- applies to the person that doesn't look or smell like us. I, I, I don't see myself as an evangelist. I, I'm working at that, you know, inviting and welcoming and sharing the gospel. But Lord, help me not to be a hindrance. So Jesus was upset because they revised the purpose of God's house, and in the revision of that, they were preventing others from connecting. But here's one final thought. If you look carefully, you might be confused because this is actually the second cleansing of the temple. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this incident, but John records another incident, and if you're, if you're not paying attention, you'll think, oh, wait a minute, this is, there's a contradiction, but the fact is, in John chapter 2, right after the miracle at Cana, before the encounter with Nicodemus, before the encounter with the woman at the well, Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple, and there are some distinctions between it, but that was at the beginning of his ministry. Right out of the gate, he cleanses the temple. This is in the beginning of Passion Week. This is on the cusp of the triumphal entry. This is at the end of his ministry. This is at least three years later. And the lesson that I take away from that is simply this. It's easy to slip back into bad habits and broken models, even after our life has been disrupted by the Lord Jesus. I don't don't know about you, I don't know about your conversion experience, but pretty much Jesus, for most of us, comes in and disrupts our life. I mean, he interposes himself on the path that would lead to destruction and saves us. And that's disruptive. And unless we pay attention and embrace what he's trying to call us to, 
We can lose our focus and our purpose. And I think that that's true even in our church gatherings, even in our small group gatherings. Um, I, I'm very interested in being current and successful. But I read a lot of, I read a lot of things that it feels like to me, you, you can throw this out if you don't like it. Uh, and by the way, if you don't like the teaching today, come back next week and Glenn will be, he'll, he'll clean it up. But there's so much of a superimposition of a business model on the church. The, the church is a business. We do have to, as the scripture says, as Paul said, provide all things honest. And so it's good for us to do things right. But I wonder in this superimposition if we, if we aren't losing focus on the basic things. So let me... Let me close today with some questions. For you, where, wh- what might this mean? I, I think it just a refocus on the purpose of gathering each week when we gather for worship, come with an attitude and say, Lord, I am going to make your house a house of prayer. A group of people meet every week in the, back in the youth room and pray. You could stop and sit in your car, if you're early, sit in your car for five minutes and pray and welcome. I'm telling you that when we permeate the house, the gathering, the people of God with prayer, then when the outsider walks in, they're gonna feel the welcome of the kingdom. There is something about prayer that is preparing the atmosphere. So make this a house of prayer. Here are the questions that I'm gonna close with. Are we making it easy for people to connect to God or are we putting obstacles in their way? Are there any ways in which I am hindering someone else from connecting to God? And this goes outside my manner of life, my speech, my habits, my pursuits, people that know I'm a Christian and and I do things that are eh, a little shady, am I hindering them from connecting? Have we commercialized in any way? And that doesn't mean you get paid. But have we exchanged acts of service for some sort of commercialization and And finally, you know, Jesus has come and radically disrupted our lives. Have we allowed old habits and old ways of thinking to creep back in? So if uh, if someone wants to come, we're, uh, we're pretty close to time, aren't we? Is this okay? You know, whether it's the theme of teaching, maybe you could make some notes. I'm going to make Cascade a house of prayer. I'm going to build a house of prayer in 2020. Ask the Lord how to do that. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the services. Pray for the ministries. Pray for outreach. Ask the Lord to put people's 
names on your heart and pray for them to connect. Pray that they'll come in and things, things that hinder them will be removed. Jesus, come in and, uh, you know, cleanse the temple of our lives so that it's not so cluttered with all of the noise and hubbub. Lord Jesus, I, I, I think, I pray that you will take, take these thoughts, take this lesson, take your passion for your Father's house to be a house of prayer. If the rest wasn't clear, that's clear, Jesus, that you have declared the gathering of your people to be a house of prayer. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to sow into what God is doing through Cascade Vineyard, we always welcome your prayers for our church body, our communities, and our leadership. If you'd like to contribute financially, please visit cascadevineyard.org forward slash give.